Home Goods Etailer Wayfair opened its first full-service flagship in a Boston-area mall last week, complete with virtual reality and AR-enabled iPads for sales reps. But does that furnish enough reason for people to get off their couches and into the showroom? Is Walgreens the next retailer to go organic? And the question that seems to be on everyone's mind this week, how is Amazon handling its third-party uprising? We've got the scoop and more. On today's episode, it's Monday, August 26th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Our guests today include Carl Boutet and Mina Fader. Carl is a retail executive in residence at Highline Beta and advisor to McGill University's Benston School of Retail Management. Mina is the managing director of Baker Retailing Center of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Both welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The first bit of news we're going to go over is Wayfair. Home goods company Wayfair joins a laundry list of other digitally native brands that have made the leap onto the brick and mortar scene. It opened its first store in Boston last week. The 3,700 square foot store blends together the physical and digital, leverages VR technology so customers can experiment with furniture placement and store employees are equipped with AR enabled iPads, updated in real time with product and pricing information along with customer ratings. The store serves as a showroom for big ticket items like sofas and dining furniture, along with a variety of household goods and giftable items. Despite consistent double-digit revenue growth and nearly $6.8 billion in revenue last year, Wayfair is yet to turn a profit. Are physical stores going to be the home-run Wayfair needs, or are its underdeveloped distribution systems and high customer acquisition costs a burden too heavy to mend by proxy playscapes? You know, what's your take on this? So I think it's really interesting that Wayfair has decided to open stores or at least open one store. Simply, you know, at least as a start, it's a good thing. We're all talking about it. People are interested in hearing this kind of stuff. In the D2C world, it's a trend these days to open brick and mortar, and it shows that Wayfair is really part of that. And at the same time, as they start saturating the online customer base, opening up new customer acquisition opportunities allows for them to, or at least this store would allow for that to happen. But it's really expensive, and it's going to take more than one store to do that. And it just really is a big question for me as to whether this is the appropriate way for them to move forward, especially given how much money that they are currently losing and what it's going to take for them to continue to grow. I mean, to grow and to lose more money doesn't seem to be a an appropriate way of doing things. You know, the other side to this is I think they're really expanding the competitor base because now they're competing with the Ashley Furnitures and the Raymore and Flanagan's and all these others of the world. And I think it just gets to be a broader group of people that they're looking into. So I'll be curious to see um, how well they do on this. Yeah, to grow and to lose more money, that seems you know, a, a bit of a, a hard place to be in. Carl, what's your thoughts? First thought, too little, too late. I really am quite skeptical on the future of Wayfair and if it's actually going to be able to make it much further. Bringing up the acquisition cost piece is just out of control. There's these gentlemen by the name of McCarthy and Fader out there that have done quite a bit of research on this and have showed some strong numbers and analytics around why the model is so dysfunctional to begin with. Extending that into what Mina was just saying about the store and this opportunity, I think that's the too little too late part really where they should have been doing this five years ago. The economics do make sense when opening stores actually reduce acquisition costs. And that's an interesting piece that we're seeing more and more. But at this stage with the kind of cash burn they're going through, it's not sustainable. My sort of tongue in cheek response to a lot of what they, what they, you know, whenever their name comes up recently is that 
I suspect the executives are spending a lot of time staring at the call display, praying to the gods that Amazon or Walmart shows up on that screen to see if they're available to be purchased because they're about the only two companies left that would have the kind of cash to acquire them. They're also sort of a victim of their own revenue success. The price of acquisition is pretty much taking them out of the market. So what do you think that the rest of the world isn't seeing? Because their stock prices up until recently were just going through the roof. So it's kind of interesting to see that. Yeah. The rest of the world when it comes to stock market is really confusing for me it's in a time when we're looking at WeWork IPO structures and things like that. So I'm not too sure what they're seeing is they're just so little out there that they're just hoping that this one's eventually going to turn a curve or is it propped up by some other interests? I have no idea, but the economics just don't work, but that doesn't necessarily seem to slow down the street. Yeah, I did see a statistic that the industry, at least in the U.S., is definitely growing in terms of e-commerce in the furniture category. So that's something to consider. And Carl, like you said, maybe there will be a buyout. That would probably be good for them, right? I also read that customers can return things that they bought in the store to the store, but if you bought something online from Wayfair, which the majority of people do, then you can't return it in the store. You have to ship it back. Well, that's a mistake. I, I wasn't aware of that, but that's one of the main reasons why you do open these physical locations to facilitate the reverse logistics and actually make them maybe a little more cost effective. But that's again, goes to show maybe how they haven't really understood what the format can do for them. I would actually think the return costs are so much higher when you're talking about online versus at the store. That's crazy. I had not heard that as well. Yeah, so there might be a convenience piece missing. Well, two things. I mean, first of all, e-commerce and furniture absolutely is going to keep going and probably faster than other categories because there's a big catch-up element and the logistics are starting to play out into that where the companies like it. You mentioned Ashley and others are now investing more and more in digital, so you'll, it's normal. But I don't think Wayfair is doing this from a place where they really believe in it. I think they're just doing it because there's probably some pressure on them to have physical retail, but they, don't, they haven't really fully figured out what it is, what's the purpose of it. I'm hoping that there is a salvation for them somewhere. I'm not being bearish on them because I don't like them. I think the models that you know, has done a lot of good for the industry, but at the same time, I just don't know economically what you know, the end game is. So That totally makes sense. So our next bit of news is around grocery. At the corner of Happy and Healthy, you might find more than your typical drugstore. Walgreens announced last Monday they would be expanding its Kroger grocery partnership. Building on an exploratory format, Walgreens plans to offer an assortment of curated Kroger Express items, including organic foods, piloted at 35 of its Knoxville, Tennessee stores. But there's more. They're also providing curbside grocery pickup services. And over at Kroger, the supermarket will begin selling Walgreens brand of health and beauty products. Meanwhile, if we move to our big boxes, they released some interesting updates too. Target announced last week it's rolling out the first phase of its Good and Gather grocery brand on September 15th, offering quality with affordability. And Walmart is reporting strong sales with an optimistic profit forecast this quarter. Last week, it announced a collaboration with BuzzFeed to launch shoppable recipes on the media company's 4,000 tasty videos. So ingredient lists from the videos can be directly added to digital carts. There's no better time to try creating that 20-layer bean dip with football season right around the corner. What's your take on convenience stores and grocers partnering to offer each other's inventory? I would think for Walgreens, why wouldn't they expand their existing nice brand versus partnering with Kroger? First, I mean, I'm a big fan of collaboration and co-creation. I think this is an important step for our industry where no one retailer is now saying, I've got this all figured out. They recognize that to be stronger and better, they need to cooperate with like-minded partners. And these manifestations, these are the ones you just laid out are all great. I mean, I think they're encouraging for our industry to see that openness. I've even seen here Walmart having a store in stores with Minso. You would have never even thought of that 
two years ago, you know, that that was even possible that Walmart would let a store and store come into one of its spaces. So I think it speaks to an openness around the opportunities to collaborate, an openness around the fact that they don't have all the answers. And most importantly, I think it's going to be very iterative. I think we're going to see a lot more of these sort of approaches. Some are going to work great. Others are going to fail miserably. But it's, I'm glad to see that the retailers are out there and, and trying it. And it's very complimentary. More specifically, you know, the convenience plus uh, grocery plus, I would say, drugstore combination is, is very, very powerful. If anything, if they figure out a way even just to share the data around that, you'll be unlocking a lot of value. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really great to see that these companies are trying to find ways to have deeper relationships with their customers and focusing on some of these higher margin products, such as pharmacy, and finding convenience as a way to really support the customer and the customer experience. But one of the concerns I have is that grocery is traditionally a very low margin business. And I think, and I'm not suggesting that they're not doing this, but I think we really need to be careful about making sure that the number of trials that they're doing are based off of strategy and kind of data-driven metrics that are out there. Because I'm not sure how many of these kinds of trials that they can fail at and still be successful in the long term because, you know, because of the low margins that they have in their business. So I think cautiously optimistic, but I hope they're doing this with a strategic perspective in mind and not just throwing spaghetti against the wall. But the target situation, I think, is really interesting. I think they have shown historically their success in being able to provide a cool private label with good quality and affordable pricing. And they're expanding that now onto the food side, which I think because of their credibility and what they've done already, I think that that's one that seems to be going towards a sure success, at least in my mind. Yeah. And I mean, I saw this morning a note from, I think it's Citigroup that just, uh, you know, put Target as a buy and, and was really enthusiastic about their results and has expecting much better things because of this reinvestment in business and very encouraging. I think it shows some good signs, but to Tamina's point, you got to be careful, has to be strategic. Strategic. It can't be, uh, even though I like spaghetti a lot, I don't think it should be thrown against the wall. <laughs> yeah, and I, I do yeah. worry about traditional grocers, you know, how they will respond when big players are coming in, like Target and Walmart and Walgreens and Kroger and partnering, because there's a lot of small, more regional grocery stores that maybe don't have as much convenience and people are going to go elsewhere because they can get their pharmacy goods and photo and groceries all in one. So, you know, there are these companies um, that are in the Midwest and different areas where they're actually working with a lot of these mom and pop type grocery stores, pulling them together to create an online marketplace presence. And what they're trying to do is not only do grocery, but partner with companies like, and I'm not saying they're partnering with them, but I'm using like a Dix or a Models or some other product lines out there so that they can then gain value by combining those things together as a way for these smaller grocery store chains to be able to compete against these very large ones that are out there. And I think it's an interesting business model if they can make it work. It's a business model. I spent the better part of six, almost seven years in trying to develop for, it's been around for a while actually in Canada and, and elsewhere. There's this everywhere, every market has its co-ops and that's what we're speaking to here is sort of a co-op approach and building out platforms and sharing the costs of those platforms and increasing distribution. So it makes a lot of sense. Maybe one thing, though, to note, and this probably propels a lot of this need to collaborate is, especially if you're going to be pushing on convenience as an important factor in your model, you're almost going to have no choice but to collaborate. 
the oxygen tanks of Amazon and, and Walmart are so big that if you think you're going to be able to keep up with them on convenience, you're going to need to band together and grow that proverbial tank so that you have the resources to go underwater for a little while because it's going to be messy and expensive while everybody's fighting for that last mile and, and getting that product to you before you even know you want it. And what's going on in China and what's going on with grocery store? And I know that they're large, but companies like Hema, uh, which is part of Alibaba, and what they're doing in terms of convenience, delivery, uh, recipe building, being able to use AR for an AI in order for you to be able to look at a piece of fruit and find out where it was from, when it was put on a shelf, all of that kind of information you could see from a technology standpoint and a convenience standpoint and an experience standpoint, they seem to be further along than we are, at least in the grocery world. So that's, for me, a good indication of where I think things will be going here. The 15-minute cup of noodles in Shanghai. Everybody comes back talking about where they, within 15 minutes anywhere in Shanghai, they can get a couple of noodles or, a, or an apple or something like that, which is just crazy when you think about it. I haven't even heard of that, Mina. So it's awesome that you brought that up because it just speaks to the increasing consumer desire for transparency, especially when it comes to groceries. Absolutely. We talk about fresh and we talk about local, and this mm-hmm. is a way to really prove that it's fresh and it's local. Totally. That's a really interesting concept. And I wonder if it will, you know, venture over to the North American side and we'll see that. I don't know. What do you think? How many years until we would see something like that in our stores? Manhattan, you'll see it probably. If it's not already there, you'll see it very quickly, but I'm not too sure in the middle of Idaho if it's going to work so well. Yep. Makes total sense. And, you know, Carl's point about sharing the first party data, that's obviously a huge opportunity when you're talking about these partnerships or collaborations and the insights will be, you know, potentially enormous and allow them to do better advertising, which brings us actually into the next topic, which last Thursday, Amazon announced plans to spend $15 billion in 2019 on various initiatives to improve support for small business sellers and referenced all the services and tools it's released this year to help level the competition in its complex automated marketplace and fulfillment system. Amazon's announcement is timely considering just last month, the United States Department of Justice announced a sweeping antitrust review of Amazon and other market leading online platforms through the department's antitrust division. In the wake of the probe, many Amazon merchants are now organizing against the company as the FTC and DOJ continue its investigation. According to a recent analyst note from Morgan Stanley, Amazon's third-party business is worth $307 billion of the company's $1.1 trillion enterprise value and comprises 58% of all merchandise sales. Amazon's third-party sellers are preparing to complain to government officials about how Amazon's practices are destroying their businesses. And some of the merchants who spoke with Business Insider said some of those complaints include Amazon's unfair advantage in accessing sales data on its third-party platform. So, Mina, I'm going to pass this over to you first. What do you think about Amazon's response and the probe in general? So, let's start with the probe. I really feel like we're talking about antitrust, and I really wonder if this is antitrust, because nobody's really going to describe the size of the market to be the online business, where Amazon is reportedly to have close to 50% of that business. And I can't imagine that the retail sector as a whole, when you're talking about 20% of it being online, and then if you assume 50% of that being Amazon, we're talking 10% of the marketplace. To me, that doesn't really kind of fall into the category of antitrust. So I do question that. But what it doesn't do is I still think that there's this 
perception from the public about the big, bad Amazon. And so I think that's probably at least as important as the antitrust situation. And while Amazon hasn't really faced the same kind of backlash that a Facebook or some of the others have faced recently in terms of the use of data and all that stuff, there seems to be this push from even candidates like Elizabeth Warren that's come out and said that if you're running a marketplace and you really can't sell your own brand. And so, you know, what does that mean for Amazon? And that could be very huge. So I do think that Amazon needs to find a way to give in a bit to these third-party brands to help the public perception. And what that means and how much that is in terms of giving a bit, I'm really not sure, but certainly what Amazon's doing is a good first step. But I also say to the third-party sellers that are out there, they chose to go on the marketplace. There is clearly an advantage to doing that, at least initially, because it gets their product name out there and sales up very quickly, especially for products that are limited in terms of the price differentiation. So it's a little bit of give and take, and I think that's the difficult part that we're all facing right now. There's some parts I agree with, some parts I'm not so aligned with me on. And the one I do agree is the antitrust, if it's really the right road. And I'm not a, an expert in law by any means, but I mean, it seems like the Sherman Act wasn't really created for this sort of thing. And if it is, it needs to be really readdressed because the, the idea here is also the consumer's best interest, which I, you know, wholeheartedly think Amazon has. So I don't know if that's the right way to tackle it. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that the third parties are all complicit in wanting to be there. And I think to Mina's point, if you're starting a brand, yes, you almost have no choice to be there because that's your quickest access to market and buyers. So I can't blame any new player to have to play to deal with Amazon where I have more troubles with them. And, and we haven't heard so much about this recently, although speaking with some vendors, it still feels like it's a practice is I think there's a lot of pressure on established brands to have to play with Amazon. And when I say have to, you, they always have the way of saying no. But there was a story two years ago that came out actually of all places in the Washington Post that, you know, owned by Jeff Bezos, but around Birkenstock and how they were really trying to resist. They really didn't want to sell on Amazon. They thought it was really not good for their brand. And the ways that Amazon went around to get Birkenstocks listed on their third-party marketplace going out and buying the stock, selling it below cost to try to pressure the margin and put Birkenstock in a position where they had to do it. I mean, good for Birkenstock. They held their own for a long time. The CEO was very tenacious in this battle. But others like Nike, I mean, Nike pretty much was forced to go in. And I'm not feeling sorry for Nike by any chance. You know, I mean, they're doing fine. But I'm just still saying it's pretty crazy when you think about I know right away a lot of people who've been in retail for a while will go back, well, how different is this to Walmart? Because this was sort of the Walmart thing 20 years ago, or your, your best, worst enemy, because they would bring you so much volume, but at the same time, they would push down your margin and they could make or break you. But this feels different to me. It feels like, listen, kudos to the team there to have created this sort of their infamous flywheel. But God, I mean, they've sort of built out the perfect equation that sort of makes it, you almost have no choice but to go on and, but it's not for your own best interest. That's where I'm glad there's more scrutiny coming around. That is it coming? Are they going through the right channels for the right reasons? Remains to be seen, but it definitely needs to be addressed. Yeah, no, I agree. Nike went out onto Amazon. It was for that reason. They knew that their product was actually being sold. At least that's what they said. They, they knew their products were already being sold, so they wanted to have control of it. And what better way than to go out there yourself? I think it was Henkel, the high-end knife brand or whatever, where, where Amazon would tell these brands, say, listen, we know you're having a hard time with these third-party sellers, which, by the way, they're 
they're third party. We have no control over them. If they're selling below MSRP or below list or whatever, unfortunately, we can't really do anything to help you with that. But if you open an official channel with us and become a marketplace, open, you know, direct Nike or whatever, it's funny, you know, all of a sudden we'll have, we'll be able to have better algorithms. We'll have better control over those pricing practices. And, and you'll see that those, you know, those below cost items are going to start disappearing. So it's, it, there's, there's some questions there that need to be raised. Yeah. So to both of your points, is it even appropriate, number one, to call it antitrust? And the other point it sounds like is, you know, on one side, sellers chose this platform, especially initially, but now maybe it's that they feel forced to join the platform when their interests may not be represented how they would like. And so, you know, it's potentially a biased statement, but Amazon did say, I think it was in April that you know, they were removing some promotions of their private label products in the midst of this increasing demand for tech regulation. But even with their promotion, their private labels haven't really taken off. And they made a statement that it only accounted for, you know, like 1% of their overall retail sales. Yeah, I would probably challenge that considering I think they have 460 private labels and they're adding by, you know, they're like everything else It's for the long run. Maybe the short term return isn't there, but that's really this commoditized goods, those low consideration purchase products. They're just taking all that data from those brands and, and maybe not Nike. So, you know, I think somebody wants to buy a Nike shoe, they'll buy a Nike shoe. They won't buy an Amazon knockoff of it. But anything else that's less brand driven, Amazon, it just has access to so much data around how those products perform. And it's fascinating. I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, I did an exercise a couple of weeks ago for something I was researching to go and see what the extent of the, what their private label collection is. And it's mind boggling from, I saw acoustic guitar stands, you know, by Prime mm-hmm. or, or by Amazon Basics, you know, obviously batteries and all the other stuff, but they, they have so many SKUs. I forget that. I think it was 17,000 SKUs. So there oh, must wow. be, you know, something being driven by that. And, and that's the number that's popping into my head. It might not, I might be completely off, but it was definitely in the thousands and it might probably be in the tens of thousands. So they might have partnerships with the guitar stand manufacturers. You know, they, they're probably not producing that themselves and just might be a deal they have, but I don't know. But they've also created a lot of companies, you know, that have come to life on Amazon's platform. So it's not all bad. It's just that it has to be re-examined and that private label business is probably one of the first things I would take a look at. Yeah, all good points. And also kind of talks to Mina's initial statement about just their need to focus a little bit more maybe on the public perception when it comes to these topics. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's public perception, but I think the public likes them. But I think it's our industry perspective maybe is the one that's a little more, you know, is where the head scratching is happening the most. Okay, well, that was this week's rundown. Thank you, Carl and Mina, for joining the show today. I really enjoyed hearing your insights. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.